0: Kristen Marchand, and welcome to the Opiango Line. Joining me tonight are Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chepesky, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormkey, all members of the Opiongo Readers Theatre. And yes, we're here again tonight, as usual, to entertain you. But we're especially here to remind you of what Sir Winston Churchill once said when offered a new, expensive bestseller to read on his summer vacation. Said Mr. Churchill, Why, madam, why would I risk reading a bad new book, when I have a perfectly good library full of excellent old books. So, in honor of Mr. Churchill's literary wisdom, and especially for those of you who are not too happy with those summer bestsellers aimed at a little light reading on the beach, we've got a great show today simply called Four from Dublin. It's based on the fictional writing of James Joyce, found in his excellent old book, The Dubliners, a collection of 15 short stories published in 1914. And though we could only fit four of his stories into the next hour, we are certain that they would make Mr. Churchill throw away those new bodice rippers and contemporary penny dreadfuls that were thrust upon him when he had more pressing things to do with his busier summers. James Joyce was a Dubliner himself, born there in 1882, though he died in exile in far-off Zurich, Switzerland, in 1941, at a time when Mr. Winston Churchill had other things on his mind. Still, James Joyce was no mean writer of popular fiction in his day. Indeed, though nearly 80 years has passed since Joyce's own passing, millions of his readers have continued to find extraordinary enjoyment in those very ordinary Dubliners he wrote about back in 1914. Not so much because they are peculiar to Dublin during his own times, but because they seem to be real people who could be living among us today. Joyce had a way of taking very ordinary people in very ordinary situations and yet somehow showing them to us in an extraordinary way. Some call his technique a revelation. Others say his art was full of epiphanies. We think he was just an interesting writer, certainly worthy of a Churchillian hour. So sit back now and let's meet four of James Joyce's very ordinary Dubliners a naive boy who falls head over heels for the girl next door, a young woman offered an escape from her dreary home life, a single mother who runs a boarding house with her sometimes passionate children, and a troubled office worker who just wants a night on the town. All four belong to the early 20th century, but all are painted with such extraordinary insight that we can't help but recognize them today not as Dubliners but as 21st century people, we certainly know. Here is Araby, read by Mark Wormke.
1: North Richmond Street, being blind, was a quiet street, except at the hour when the Christian Brothers School set the boys free. An uninhabited house of two stories stood at the blind end, detached from its neighbours in a square ground. The other houses of the street, conscious of decent lies within them, gazed at one another with brown, imperturbable faces. The former tenant of our house, a priest, had died in the back drawing room air musty from having been long enclosed hung in all the rooms and the waste room behind the kitchen was littered with old useless papers among these i found a few paper-covered books the pages of which were curled and damp the abbot by walter scott the devout communicant and the memoirs of vidocq i liked the last best because its leaves were yellow The wild garden behind the house contained a central apple tree and a few straggling bushes, under one of which I found the late tenant's rusty bicycle pump. He had been a very charitable priest. In his will, he had left all his money to institutions and the furniture of his house to his sister. When the short days of winter came, dusk fell before we had eaten our dinners. When we met in the street, the houses had grown sombre. The space of sky above us was the color of ever-changing violet and towards it the lamps of the street lifted their feeble lanterns the cold air stung us and we played till our bodies glowed our shouts echoed in the silent street The career of our play brought us through the dark, muddy lanes behind the houses, where we ran the gauntlet of the rough tribes from the villages, to the back doors of the dark, dripping gardens where odors arose from the ash pits, to the dark, odorous stables where a coachman smoothed and combed the horse, or shook music from the buckled harness. When we returned to the street, light from the kitchen windows had filled the areas. If my uncle was seen turning the corner, we hid in the shadow until we had seen him safely housed. Or if Mangan's sister came out on the doorstep to call her brother into his tea, we watched her from our shadow peer up and down the street. We waited to see whether she would remain or go in, and if she remained, we left our shadow and walked up to Mangan's steps resignedly. She was waiting for us, her figure defined by the light from the half-open door. Her brother always teased her before she obeyed, and I stood at the railings looking at her. Her dress swung as she moved her body, and the soft rope of her hair tossed from side to side. Every morning I lay on the floor in the front parlor watching her door. The blind was pulled down to within an inch of the sash that I could not be seen. When she came out on the doorstep, my heart leapt. I ran to the hall, seized my books, and followed her. I kept her brown figure always in my eye, and when we came near the point at which our ways diverged, I quickened my pace and passed her. This happened morning after morning. I had never spoken to her, except for a few casual words, and yet her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood. Her image accompanied me even in places the most hostile to romance. On Saturday evenings, when my aunt went marketing, I had to carry some of the parcels. We walked through the flaring streets, jostled by drunken men and bargaining women, amid the curses of labourers, the shrill litanies of shop boys who stood on guard by the barrels of pig's cheeks, the nasal chanting of street singers who sang a camalia about O'Donovan Rossa or a ballad about the troubles in our native land. These noises converged in a single sensation of life for me. I imagined that I bore my chalice safely through a throng of foes. Her name sprang to my lips at moments in strange prayers and praises which I myself did not understand. My eyes were often full of tears, I could not tell why, and at times a flood from my heart seemed to pour itself out into my bosom. I thought little of the future. I did not know whether I would ever speak to her or not or if I spoke to her how I could tell her of my confused adoration but my body was like a harp and her words and gestures were like fingers running upon the wires one evening I went into the back drawing-room in which the priest had died it was a dark rainy evening and there was no sound in the house Through one of the broken panes I heard the rain impinge upon the earth, the fine, incessant needles of water playing in the sodden beds. Some distant lamp or lighted window gleamed below me. I was thankful that I could see so little. All my senses seemed to desire to veil themselves, and feeling that I was about to slip from them, I pressed the palms of my hands together until they trembled, murmuring, O love, O love, many times at last she spoke to me when she addressed the first words to me I was so confused that I did not know what to answer she asked me was I going to Araby I forgot whether I answered yes or no it would be a splendid bazaar she said she would love to go and why can't you I asked while she spoke she turned a silver bracelet round and round her wrist she could not go she said because there would be a retreat that week in her convent Her brother and two other boys were fighting for their caps, and I was alone at the railings. She held one of the spikes, bowing her head towards me. The light from the lamp opposite our door caught the white curve of her neck, lit up her hair that rested there, and falling, lit up the hand upon the railing. It fell over one side of her dress and caught the white border of a petticoat, just visible as she stood at ease. It's well for you, she said. If I go, I said, I will bring you something. What innumerable follies laid waste my waking and sleeping thoughts after that evening. I wished to annihilate the tedious intervening days. I chafed against the work of school. At night in my bedroom and by day in the classroom, her image came between me and the page I strove to read. The syllables of the word Araby were called to me through the silence in which my soul luxuriated and cast an eastern enchantment over me. I asked for leave to go to the bazaar on Saturday night. My aunt was surprised and hoped it was not some Freemason affair. I answered few questions in class. I watched my master's face pass from amiability to sternness. He hoped I was not becoming too idle. I could not call my wandering thoughts together. I had hardly any patience with the serious work of life, which now that it stood between me and my desire seemed to me child's play, ugly, monotonous child's play. On Saturday morning, I reminded my uncle that I wished to go to the bazaar in the evening. He was fussing at the hall stand, looking for the hat brush, and answered me curtly, Yes, boy, I know. As he was in the hall, I could not go into the front parlour and lie at the window. I left the house in bad humour and walked slowly towards the school. The air was pitilessly raw, and already my heart misgave me. When I came home to dinner, my uncle had not yet come home. Still, it was early. I sat staring at the clock for some time, and when its ticking began to irritate me, I left the room. I mounted the staircase and gained the upper part of the house. The high, cold, empty, gloomy rooms liberated me, and I went from room to room singing. From the front window, I saw my companions playing below in the street. Their cries reached me, weakened and indistinct, and leaning my forehead against the cool glass, I looked over at the dark house where she lived. I may have stood there for an hour, seeing nothing but the brown-clad figure cast by my imagination, touched discreetly by the lamplight at the curved neck, at the hand upon the railings, and at the border below the dress. When I came downstairs again, I found Mrs. Mercer sitting at the fire. She was an old, garrulous woman, a pawnbroker's widow who collected used stamps for some pious purpose. I had to endure the gossip of the tea-table. The meal was prolonged beyond an hour, and still my uncle did not come. Mrs. Mercer stood up to go. She was sorry she couldn't wait any longer, but it was after eight o'clock, and she did not like to be out late, as the night air was bad for her. When she had gone, I began to walk up and down the room, clenching my fists. My aunt said, I'm afraid you may put off your bazaar for this night of our lord. At nine o'clock, I heard my uncle's latchkey in the hall door. I heard him talking to himself, and I heard the hall stand rocking when it received the weight of his overcoat. I could interpret these signs. When he was midway through his dinner, I asked him to give me the money to go to the bazaar. He had forgotten. "'The people are in bed, and after their first sleep now,' he said. I did not smile. My aunt said to him energetically, "'Can't you give him the money and let him go? You've kept him late enough as it is.' My uncle said he was very sorry he had forgotten. He said he believed in the old saying, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. He asked me where I was going, and when I told him a second time, he asked me did I know the Arabs' farewell to his steed. When I left the kitchen, he was about to recite the opening lines of the piece to my aunt. I held a florin tightly in my hand as I strode down Buckingham Street towards the station. The sight of the streets thronged with buyers and glaring with gas recalled to me the purpose of my journey. I took my seat in a third-class carriage of a deserted train. After an intolerable delay, the train moved out of the station slowly. It crept onward among ruinous houses and over the twinkling river. At Westland Row Station, a crowd of people pressed to the carriage doors, but the porters moved them back, saying that it was a special train for the bazaar. I remained alone in the bare carriage in a few minutes the train drew up beside an improvised wooden platform i passed out onto the road and saw by the lighted dial of the clock that it was ten minutes to ten in front of me was a large building which displayed the magical name i could not find any sixpenny entrance and fearing that the bazaar would be closed i passed in quickly through a turnstile handing a shilling to a weary looking man i found myself in a big hall girdled at half its height by a gallery nearly all the stalls were closed and the greater part of the hall was in darkness i recognized a silence like that which pervades a church after a service i walked into the center of the bazaar timidly a few people were gathered about the stalls which were still open before a curtain over which the words cafe Chantant" were written in colored lamps two men were counting money on a salver i listened to the fall of the coins Remembering with difficulty why I had come, I went over to one of the stalls and examined porcelain vases and flowered tea sets. At the door of the stall, a young lady was talking and laughing with two young gentlemen. I remarked their English accents and listened vaguely to their conversation. Oh, I never said such a thing. Oh, but you did. Oh, but I didn't. Didn't she say that? Yes, I heard her. Oh, there's a fib. Observing me, the young lady came over and asked me, if I wish to buy anything? The tone of her voice was not encouraging. She seemed to have spoken to me out of a sense of duty. I looked humbly at the great jars that stood like eastern guards at either side of the dark entrance to the stall and murmured, no thank you. The young lady changed the position of one of the vases and went back to the young men. They began to talk of the same subject. Once or twice, the young lady glanced at me over her shoulder i lingered before her stall though i knew my stay was useless to make my interest in her wares seem the more real then i turned away slowly and walked down the middle of the bazaar i allowed the two pennies to fall against the sixpence in my pocket i heard a voice call from one end of the gallery that the light was out the upper part of the hall was now completely dark gazing up into the darkness I SAW MYSELF AS A CREATURE DRIVEN AND DERIDED BY VANITY, AND MY EYES BURNED WITH ANGUISH AND ANGER. HERE
2: IS EVELINE, READ BY LYNN STEWART. SHE SAT AT THE WINDOW, WATCHING THE EVENING INVADE THE AVENUE. HER HEAD WAS LEANED AGAINST THE WINDOW CURTAINS, AND IN HER NOSTRILS WAS THE ODOR OF DUSTY CRITON. SHE WAS TIRED. FEW PEOPLE PASSED. THE MAN OUT OF THE LAST HOUSE PASSED ON HIS WAY HOME. She heard his footsteps clacking along the concrete pavement and afterwards crunching on the cinder path before the new red houses. One time, there used to be a field there in which they used to play every evening with other people's children. Then a man from Belfast bought the field and built houses in it. Not like their little brown houses, but bright brick houses with shining roofs. The children of the avenue used to play together in that field. The Divines, the Waters, the Duns, little Keo the Cripple, she and her brothers and sisters. Ernest, however, never played. He was too grown up. Her father used often to hunt them in out of the field with his blackthorn stick, but usually little Keo used to keep nicks and call out when he saw her father coming. Still, they seemed to have been rather happy then. Her father was not so bad then. and Besides, her mother was alive. That was a long time ago. She and her brothers and sisters were all grown up. Her mother was dead. Tizzy Dunn was dead, too, and the waters had gone back to England. Everything changes. Now, she was going to go away like the others, to leave her home. Home. She looked around the room, reviewing all its familiar objects, which she had dusted once a week for so many years, wondering where on earth all the dust came from. Perhaps she would never see again those familiar objects from which she had never dreamed of being divided. And yet during all those years she had never found out the name of the priest whose yellowing photograph hung on the wall above the broken harmonium beside the coloured print of the promises made to blessed margaret mary alacock he had been a school friend of her father whenever he showed the photograph to a visitor her father used to pass it with a casual word he's in melbourne now she had consented to go away to leave her home was that wise She tried to weigh each side of the question. In her home, anyway, she had shelter and food. She had those whom she had known all her life about her. Of course, she had to work hard, both in the house and at business. What would they say of her in the stores when they found out that she had run away with a fellow? Say she was a fool, perhaps, and her place would be filled up by advertisement. Miss Gavin would be glad. She had always had an edge on her especially whenever there were people listening. Miss Hill, don't you see these ladies are waiting? Look lively, Miss Hill, please. She would not cry many tears at leaving the stores. But in her new home, in a distant unknown country, it would not be like that. Then she would be married. She, Evelyn. People would treat her with respect then. She would not be treated as her mother had been. Even now, though she was over 19, she sometimes felt herself in danger of her father's violence. She knew it was that that had given her the palpitations. When they were growing up, he had never gone for her like he used to go for Harry and Ernest, because she was a girl. But latterly, he had begun to threaten her and say what he would do to her only for her dead mother's sake. No, she had nobody to protect her. Ernest was dead, and Harry, who was in the church decorating business, was nearly always down somewhere in the country. Besides, the invariable squabble for money on Saturday nights had begun to weary her unspeakably. She always gave her entire wages, seven shillings, and Harry always sent up what he could, but the trouble was to get any money from her father. He said that she used to squander the money, that she had no head, and that he wasn't going to give her his hard-earned money to throw about the streets and much more, for he was usually fairly bad on Saturday night. In the end, he would give her the money and ask her had she any intention of buying Sunday's dinner. Then she had to rush out as quickly as she could and do her marketing, holding her black leather purse tightly in her hand as she elbowed her way through the crowds and returning home late under her load of provisions. She had hard work to keep the house together and to see that the two young children who had been left to her charge went to school regularly and got their meals regularly. It was hard work, a hard life. But now that she was about to leave it, she did not find it a wholly undesirable life. She was about to explore another life with Frank. Frank was very kind, manly, open-hearted. She was to go away with him by the night boat to be his wife, and to live with him in Buenos Aires, where he had a home waiting for her. How well she remembered the first time she had seen him. He was lodging in a house on the main road where she used to visit. It seemed a few weeks ago. He was standing at the gate, his peaked cap pushed back on his head, and his hair tumbled forward over a face of bronze. Then they had come to know each other. He used to meet her outside the stores every evening and see her home. He took her to see the Bohemian Girl, and she felt elated as she sat in an unaccustomed part of the theatre with him. He was awfully fond of music and sang a little. People knew that they were courting, and when he sang about the lass that loves a sailor, she always felt pleasantly confused. He used to call her Poppins out of fun. First of all, it had been an excitement for her to have a fellow, and then she had begun to like him. He had tales of distant countries. He had started as a deck boy at a pound a month on a ship of the Allen line going out to Canada. He told her the names of the ships that he had been on and the names of the different services. He had sailed through the Straits of Magellan and he told her stories of the terrible Patagonians. He had fallen on his feet in Buenos Aires, he said, and had come over to the old country just for a holiday. Of course, her father had found out the affair and had forbidden her to have anything to say to him. I know these sailor chaps, he said. One day he had quarrelled with Frank, and after that she had to meet her lover secretly. The evening deepened in the avenue. The white of two letters in her lap grew indistinct. One was to Harry, the other was to her father. Ernest had been her favourite, but she liked Harry, too. Her father was becoming old lately, she noticed. He would miss her. Sometimes he could be very nice. Not long before, when she had been laid up for a day... He had read her out a ghost story and made toast for her at the fire. Another day, when their mother was alive, they had all gone for a picnic to the hill of Houth. She remembered her father putting on her mother's bonnet to make the children laugh. Her time was running out, but she continued to sit by the window, leaning her head against the window curtain, inhaling the odor of dusty cretonne. Down far in the avenue, she could hear a street organ playing. She knew the air. Strange that it should come that very night to remind her of the promise to her mother, her promise to keep the home together as long as she could. She remembered the last night of her mother's illness. She was again in the close dark room at the other side of the hall, and outside she heard a melancholy air of Italy. The organ player had been ordered to go away and given sixpence. She remembered her father strutting back into the sick room, saying, Damned Italians, coming over here. As she mused, the pitiful vision of her mother's life laid its spell on the very quick of her being, that life of commonplace sacrifices closing in final craziness. She trembled as she heard again her mother's voice saying constantly with foolish insistence, "Derivon, saran, Dervon saran." At the end of pleasure, there is pain. She stood up in a sudden impulse of terror. Escape, she must escape. Frank would save her. He would give her life, and perhaps love, too. But she wanted to live. Why should she be unhappy? She had a right to happiness. Frank would take her in his arms, fold her in his arms. He would save her. She stood among the swaying crowd in the station at the north wall. He held her hand, and she knew that he was speaking to her, saying something about the passage over and over again. The station was full of soldiers with brown baggages. Through the wide doors of the sheds, she caught a glimpse of the black mass of the boat lying in beside the key wall with illumined portholes. She answered nothing. She felt her cheek pale and cold and out of a maze of distress, she prayed to God to direct her, to show her what was her duty. The boat blew a long, mournful whistle into the mist. If she went... Tomorrow she would be on the sea with Frank, steaming towards Brennizare's. Their passage had been booked. Could she still draw back after all he had done for her? Her distress awoke a nausea in her body, and she kept moving her lips in silent, fervent prayer. A bell clanged upon her heart. She felt him seize her hand. Come! All the seas of the world tumbled about her heart. He was drawing her into them. He would drown her. She gripped with both hands at the iron railing. Come! No, no, no! It was impossible! Her hands clutched the iron in frenzy. Amid the seas, she sent a cry of anguish. Evelyn! Evie! He rushed beyond the barrier and called to her to follow. He was shouted at to go on, but he still called to her. She set her white face to him, passive, like a helpless animal her eyes gave him no sign of love or farewell or recognition. Here is The boarding House, read by Kathy
3: Chepesky. Mrs. Mooney was a butcher's daughter. She was a woman who was quite able to keep things to herself, a determined woman. She had married her father's foreman and opened a butcher's shop near Spring Gardens. But as soon as his father-in-law was dead, Mr. Mooney began to go to the devil. He drank, plundered the till, ran headlong into debt. It was no use making him take the pledge. He was sure to break out again a few days after. By fighting his wife in the presence of customers and by buying bad meat, he ruined his business. One night he went for his wife with the cleaver and she had to sleep in a neighbor's house. After that, they lived apart, She went to the priest and got a separation from him with care of the children. She would give him neither money, nor food, nor house room, and so he was obliged to enlist himself as a sheriff's man. He was a shabby, stooped little drunkard with a white face and a white moustache, white eyebrows penciled above his little eyes, which were pink-veined and raw. And all day long he sat in the bailiff's room, waiting to be put on a job. Mrs. Mooney, who had taken what remained of her money out of the butcher business and set up a boarding house in Hardwick Street, was a big, imposing woman. Her house had a floating population made up of tourists from Liverpool and the Isle of Man and occasionally artistes from the music halls. Its resident population was made up of clerks from the city. She governed the house cunningly and firmly. "'knew when to give credit, when to be stern, and when to let things pass. "'All the resident young men spoke of her as the madam. "'Mrs. Mooney's young men paid fifteen shillings a week for board and lodgings, "'beer or stout at dinner excluded. "'They shared in common tastes and occupations, "'and for this reason they were very chummy with one another. "'They discussed with one another the chances of favourites and outsiders.' Jack Mooney, the madam's son, who was clerk to a commission agent in Fleet Street, had the reputation of being a hard case. He was fond of using soldiers' obscenities. Usually he came home in the small hours. When he met his friends, he always had a good one to tell them, and he was always sure to be on to a good thing, that is to say, a likely horse or a likely artiste. He was also handy with the mitts and sang comic songs. On Sunday nights, there would often be a reunion in Mrs. Mooney's front drawing room. The music hall artists would oblige, and Sheridan played waltzes and polkas and vamped accompaniments. Polly Mooney, the madam's daughter, would also sing. She sang, I'm a naughty girl, you needn't sham, you know I am. Polly was a slim girl of 19. She had light, soft hair and a small, full mouth. Her eyes, which were grey, with a shade of green through them, had a habit of glancing upwards when she spoke with anyone, which made her look like a little perverse Madonna. Mrs. Mooney had first sent her daughter to be a typist in a corn factor's office, but as a disreputable sheriff's man used to come every other day to the office, asking to be allowed to say a word to his daughter, she had taken her daughter home again and set her to do housework. As Polly was very lively, the intention was to give her the run of the young men. Besides, young men like to feel that there is a young woman not very far away. Polly, of course, flirted with the young men, but Mrs. Mooney, who was a shrewd judge, knew that the young men were only passing the time away. None of them meant business. Things went on so for a long time, and Mrs. Mooney began to think of sending Polly back to typewriting when she noticed that something was going on between Polly and one of the young men. She watched the pair and kept her counsel. Polly knew that she was being watched, but still her mother's persistent silence could not be misunderstood. There had been no open complicity between mother and daughter, no open understanding, but though people in the house began to talk of the affair, still Mrs. Mooney did not intervene. Polly began to grow a little strange in her manner, and the young man was evidently perturbed. At last, when she judged it to be the right moment, Mrs. Mooney intervened. She dealt with moral problems as a cleaver deals with meat. And in this case, she had made up her mind. It was a bright Sunday morning of early summer, promising heat, but with a fresh breeze blowing. All the windows of the boarding house were open and the lace curtains ballooned gently towards the street beneath the raised sashes. The belfry of George's church sent out constant peals and worshippers, singly or in groups, traversed the little circus before the church, revealing their purpose by their self-contained demeanour, no less than by the little volumes in their gloved hands. Breakfast was over in the boarding house and the table of the breakfast room was covered with plates on which lay yellow streaks of eggs with morsels of bacon fat and bacon rind. Mrs. Mooney sat in the straw armchair and watched the servant Mary remove the breakfast things. She made Mary collect the crusts and pieces of broken bread to help to make Tuesday's bread pudding. When the table was cleared, the broken bread collected, the sugar and butter safe under lock and key, she began to reconstruct the interview which she had had the night before with Polly. Things were as she had suspected. She had been frank in her questions, and Polly had been frank in her answers. Both had been somewhat awkward, of course. She had been made awkward by her not wishing to receive the news in too cavalier a fashion or to seem to have connived. And Polly had been made awkward not merely because allusions of that kind always made her awkward, but also because she did not wish it to be thought that in her wise innocence... She had divined the intention behind her mother's tolerance. Mrs. Mooney glanced instinctively at the little gilt clock on the mantelpiece as soon as she had become aware through her reverie that the bells of George's church had stopped ringing. It was 17 minutes past 11. She would have lots of time to have the matter out with Mr. Doran and then catch short 12 at Marlborough Street. She was sure she would win. To begin with, she had all the weight of social opinion on her side. She was an outraged mother. She had allowed him to live beneath her roof, assuming that he was a man of honour and he had simply abused her hospitality. He was 34 or 35 years of age, so that youth could not be pleaded as his excuse, nor could ignorance be his excuse, since he was a man who had seen something of the world. He had simply taken advantage of Polly's youth and inexperience. That was evident. The question was, what reparation would he make? There must be reparation made in such case. It is all very well for the man. He can go his ways as if nothing had happened, having had his moment of pleasure. But the girl has to bear the brunt. Some mothers would be content to patch up such an affair for a sum of money. She had known cases of it, but she would not do so. For her, only one reparation could make up for the loss of her daughter's honor, marriage. She counted all her cards again before sending Mary up to Doran's room to say that she wished to speak with him. She felt sure she would win. He was a serious young man, not rakish or loud-voiced like the others. If it had been Mr. Sheridan or Mr. Meade or Bantam Lyons, her task would have been much harder. She did not think he would face publicity. All the lodgers in the house knew something of the affair. Details had been invented by some. Besides, he had been employed for 13 years in a great Catholic wine merchant's office and publicity would mean for him, perhaps, the loss of his job. Whereas, if he agreed, all might be well. She knew he had a good screw for one thing and she suspected he had a bit of stuff put by. (gasps) Nearly the half hour! She stood up and surveyed herself in the pier glass the decisive expression of her great florid face satisfied her. And she thought of some mothers she knew who could not get their daughters off their hands. Mr. Doran was very anxious indeed this Sunday morning. He had made two attempts to shave, but his hand had been so unsteady that he had been obliged to desist. Three days' reddish beard fringed his jaws, and every two or three minutes a mist gathered on his glasses so that he had to take them off and polish them with his pocket handkerchief. The recollection of his confession of the night before was a cause of acute pain to him. The priest had drawn out every ridiculous detail of the affair and in the end had so magnified his sin that he was almost thankful at being afforded a loophole of reparation. The harm was done. What could he do now but marry her or run away? He could not brazen it out. The affair was sure to be talked of, and his employer would be certain to hear of it. Dublin is such a small city. Everyone knows everyone else's business. He felt his heart leap warmly in his throat as he heard in his excited imagination old Mr. Leonard calling out in his rasping voice, "'Send Mr. Doran here, please.'" All his long years of service gone for nothing, all his industry and diligence thrown away. As a young man, he had sown his wild oats, of course. He had boasted of his free thinking and denied the existence of God to his companions in public houses. But that was all past and done with, nearly. He still bought a copy of Reynolds' newspaper every week, But he attended to his religious duties and for nine-tenths of the year lived a regular life. He had money enough to settle down on. It was not that. But the family would look down on her. First of all, there was her disreputable father. And then her mother's boarding house was beginning to get a certain fame. He had a notion that he was being had. He could imagine his friends talking of the affair and laughing. She was a little vulgar. Sometimes she said, I seen, and if I'd had of known. But what would grammar matter if he really loved her? He could not make up his mind whether to like her or despise her for what she had done. Of course, he had done it too. His instinct urged him to remain free, not to marry. Once you are married, you are done for, it said. While he was sitting helplessly on the side of the bed in shirt and trousers, she tapped lightly at his door and entered. She told him all, that she had made a clean breast of it to her mother and that her mother would speak with him that morning. She cried and threw her arms round his neck, saying, Oh, Bob, Bob, what am I to do? What am I to do at all? She would put an end to herself, she said. He comforted her feebly, telling her not to cry, that it would be all right, never fear. He felt against his shirt the agitation of her bosom. It was not altogether his fault that it had happened. He remembered well, with the curious, patient memory of the celibate, the first casual caresses her dress, her breath, her fingers had given him. Then, late one night as he was undressing she had tapped at his door, timidly. She wanted to relight her candle at his, for hers had been blown out by a gust. It was her bath night. She wore a loose, open, combing jacket of printed flannel. Her white instep shone in the opening of her furry slippers, and the blood glowed warmly behind her perfumed skin. From her hands and wrists, too, as she lit, and steadied her candle, a faint perfume arose. On nights when he came in very late, it was she who warmed up his dinner. He scarcely knew what he was eating, feeling her beside him, all alone, at night, in the sleeping house. And her thoughtfulness. If the night was anyway cold or wet or windy, there was sure to be a little tumbler of punch ready for him. Perhaps they could be happy together. They used to go upstairs together on tiptoe, each with a candle. And on the third landing, exchange reluctant goodnights. They used to kiss. He remembered well her eyes, the touch of her hand, and his delirium. But delirium passes. He echoed her phrase, applying it to himself. What am I to do? The instinct of the celibate warned him to hold back. But the sin was there. Even his sense of honor told him that reparation must be made for such a sin. While he was sitting with her on the side of the bed, Mary came to the door and said that the missus wanted to see him in the parlor. He stood up to put on his coat and waistcoat, more helpless than ever. When he was dressed, he went over to her to comfort her. It would be all right. Never fear. He left her crying on the bed and moaning softly. Oh, my God. Going down the stairs, his glasses became so dimmed with moisture that he had to take them off and polish them. He longed to ascend through the roof and fly away to another country where he would never again hear of his trouble. And yet a force pushed him downstairs step by step. The implacable faces of his employer and of the madam stared upon his discomfiture. On the last flight of stairs, he passed Jack Mooney, who was coming up from the pantry, nursing two bottles of bass. They saluted coldly, and the lover's eyes rested for a second or two on a thick bulldog face and a pair of thick, short arms. When he reached the foot of the staircase, he glanced up and saw Jack regarding him from the door of the return room. Suddenly he remembered the night when one of the music hall artistes, a little blonde Londoner, had made a rather free allusion to Polly. The reunion had been almost broken up on account of Jack's violence. Everyone tried to quiet him. The music hall artiste, a, a little paler than usual, kept smiling and saying that there was no harm meant but Jack kept shouting at him that if any fellow tried that sort of a game on with his sister, he'd bloody well put his teeth down his throat so he would. Polly sat for a little time on the side of the bed, crying. Then she dried her eyes and went over to the looking glass. She dipped the end of the towel in the water jug and refreshed her eyes with the cool water. She looked at herself in profile and readjusted a hairpin above her ear. Then she went back to the bed again and sat at the foot. She regarded the pillows for a long time, and the sight of them awakened in her mind secret, amiable memories. She rested the nape of her neck against the cool iron bed rail and fell into a reverie. There was no longer any perturbation visible on her face. She waited on patiently, almost cheerfully, without alarm, her memories gradually giving place to hopes and visions of the future. Her hopes and visions were so intricate that she no longer saw the white pillows on which her gaze was fixed or remembered that she was waiting for anything. At last, she heard her mother calling. She started to her feet and ran to the banisters. Polly? Polly? Yes, Mama? Come down, dear. Mr. Doran wants to speak to you. Then she remembered what she had been waiting for.
0: Here is Counterparts, read by Jeff Bowman.
4: The bell rang furiously, and when Miss Parker went to the tube, a furious voice called out in a piercing North of Ireland accent, Send Farrington here! "'Miss Parker returned to her machine, saying to a man who was writing at a desk, "'Mr. Allen wants you upstairs.' "'The man muttered blast him under his breath and pushed back his chair to stand up. "'When he stood up, he was tall and of great bulk. "'He had a hanging face, dark, wine-coloured, with fair eyebrows and moustache. "'His eyes bulged forward slightly, and the whites of them were dirty.' He lifted up the counter and, passing by the clients, went out of the office with a heavy step. He went heavily upstairs until he came to the second landing, where a door bore a brass plate with the inscription, Mr. Allen. Here he halted, puffing with labour and vexation, and knocked. The shrill voice cried out, Come in! The man entered Mr. Allen's room. Simultaneously, Mr. Allen, a little man wearing gold-rimmed glasses on a clean-shaven face, shot his head up over a pile of documents. The head itself was so pink and hairless, it seemed like a large egg reposing on the papers. Mr. Allen did not lose a moment. Farrington, what's the meaning of this? Why have I always to complain of you? May I ask you why you haven't made a copy of that contract between Bodley and Kerwin? I told you it must be ready by four o'clock. But Mr. Shelley said, sir... Mr. Shelley said, sir, kindly attend to what I say and not to what Mr. Shelley says, sir. You have always some excuse or another for shirking sure work. Let me tell you that. If the contract is not copied before this evening, I'll lay the matter before Mr. Crosby. Do you hear me now? Yes, sir. Do you hear me now? Aye, and another little matter. I might as well be talking to the wall as talking to you. Understand, once and for all, that you get a half an hour for your lunch and not an hour and a half. How many courses do you want, I'd like to know? Do you mind me now? Yes, sir. Mr. Allen bent his head again upon his pile of papers. The man stared fixedly at the polished skull which directed the affairs of Crosby and Allen, gauging its fragility. A spasm of rage gripped his throat for a few moments and then passed, leaving after it a sharp sensation of thirst. The man recognized the sensation and felt that he must have a good night's drinking. The middle of the month was past, and if he could get the copy done in time, Mr. Allen might give him an order on the cashier. He stood still, gazing fixedly at the head upon the pile of papers. Suddenly Mr. Allen began to upset all the papers, searching for something— Then, as if he had been unaware of the man's present till that moment, he shot up his head again, saying, "'Hey, are you going to stand there all day? Upon my word, Farrington, you take things easy. "'I was waiting to see. Very good, you needn't wait to see. Go downstairs and do your work.' The man walked heavily towards the door, and as he went out of the room, he heard Mr. Allen cry after him that if the contract was not copied by evening, Mr. Crosby would hear the matter.' he returned to his desk in the lower office and counted the sheets which remained to be copied he took up his pen and dipped it in the ink but he continued to stare stupidly at the last words he had written in no case shall the said bernard Bodley be the evening was falling and in a few minutes they would be lighting the gas then he could write he felt that he must slake the thirst in his throat He stood up from his desk and, lifting the counter as before, passed out of the office. As he was passing out, the chief clerk looked at him inquiringly. "'It's all right, Mr. Shelley,' said the man, pointing with his finger to indicate the objective of his journey. The chief clerk glanced at the hat rack, but seeing the row complete, offered no remark. As soon as he was on the landing, the man pulled a shepherd's plaid cap out of his pocket, put it on his head, and ran quickly down the rickety stairs.' From the street door, he walked on furtively on the inner side of the path towards the corner and all at once dived into a doorway. He was now safe in the dark snug of O'Neill's shop. And filling up the little window that looked into the bar with his inflamed face, the colour of dark wine or dark meat, he called out, Here, Pat, give us a GP like a good fella. The curate brought him a glass of plain porter. The man drank it at a gulp and asked for a caraway seed. He put his penny on the counter, and, leaving the curate to grope for it in the gloom, retreated out of the snug as furtively as he had entered it. Darkness, accompanied by a thick fog, was gaining upon the dusk of February, and the lamps in Eustace Street had been lit. The man went up by the houses until he reached the door of the office, wondering whether he could finish his copy in time. On the stairs a moist, pungent odour of perfume saluted his nose. Evidently, Miss Delacour had come while he was out in O'Neill's. He crammed his cap back again into his pocket and re-entered the office, assuming an air of absent-mindedness. "'Mr. Allen's been calling for you,' said the chief clerk severely. "'Where were you?' The man glanced at the two clients who were standing at the counter as if to intimate that their presence prevented him from answering. As the clients were both male, the chief clerk allowed himself a laugh. "'I know that game,' he said." Five times in one day is a little bit... well, you better look sharp and get a copy of our correspondence on the Delacour case for Mr. Allen.' This address, in the presence of the public, his run upstairs and the porter he had gulped down so hastily, confused the man, and as he sat down at his desk to get what was required, he realized how hopeless was the task of finishing his copy of the contract before half-past five. The dark, damp night was coming, and he longed to spend it in the bars, drinking with his friends amid the glare of gas and the clatter of glasses. He got out the Delacour correspondence and passed out of the office. He hoped Mr. Allen would not discover that the last two letters were missing. The moist, pungent perfume lay all the way up to Mr. Allen's room. Miss Delacour was a middle-aged woman of Jewish appearance. Mr. Allen was said to be sweet on her, or on her money she came to the office often and stayed a long time when she came she was sitting beside his desk now in an aroma of perfumes smoothing the handle of her umbrella and nodding the great black feather in her hat mr allen had swivelled his chair round to face her and thrown his right foot jauntily upon his left knee the man put the correspondence on the desk and bowed respectfully but neither mr allen nor miss delacour took any notice of his bow Mr. Allen tapped a finger on the correspondence and then flicked it towards him as if to say, that's all right, you can go. The man returned to the lower office and sat down again at his desk. He stared intently at the incomplete phrase, in no case shall the said Bernard Bodley be, and thought how strange it was that the last three words began with the same letter. The chief clerk began to hurry Miss Parker, saying she would never have the letters typed in time for post. The man listened to the clicking of the machine for a few minutes and then set to work to finish his copy. But his head was not clear and his mind wandered away to the glare and rattle of the public house. It was a night for hot punches. He struggled on with his copy, but when the clock struck five, he'd still fourteen pages to write. Blast it! He couldn't finish it in time. He longed to execrate out loud, to bring his fist down on something violently. He was so enraged that he wrote Bernard Bernard instead of Bernard Bodley and had to begin again on a clean sheet. He felt strong enough to clear out the whole office single-handed. His body ached to do something, to rush out and revel in violence. All the indignities of his life enraged him. Could he ask the cashier privately for an advance? No, the cashier was no good. No damn good. He wouldn't give an advance. He knew where he would meet the boys, Leonard and O'Halloran and Nosy Flynn. The barometer of his emotional nature was set for a spell of riot. His imagination had so abstracted him that his name was called twice before he answered. Mr. Allen and Miss Delacour were standing outside the counter, and all the clerks had turned round in anticipation of something. The man got up from his desk. Mr. Allen began a tirade of abuse, saying that two letters were missing. The man answered that he knew nothing about them, that he'd made a faithful copy. The tirade continued. It was so bitter and violent that the man could hardly restrain his fist from descending upon the head of the mannequin before him. "'I know nothing about any other two letters,' he said stupidly. "'You know nothing. Of course you know nothing,' said Mr. Allen. "'Tell me,' he added, glancing first for approval to the lady beside him, "'do you take me for a fool? Do you think me an utter fool?' The man glanced from the lady's face to the little egg-shaped head and back again, and almost before he was aware of it, his tongue had found a felicitous moment. I don't think, sir, he said, that that's a fair question to put to me. There was a pause in the very breathing of the clerks. Everyone was astounded, the author of the witticism no less than his neighbours. And Miss Delacour, who was a stout, amiable person, began to smile broadly. Mr. Allen flushed to the hue of a wild rose, and his mouth twitched with a dwarf's passion. He shook his fist in the man's face till it seemed to vibrate like the knob of some electric machine. You impertinent ruffian, you impertinent ruffian, I'll make short work of you. Wait till you see. You'll apologize to me for your impertinence, or you'll quit the office instante. You'll quit this, I'm telling you, or you'll apologize to me. He stood in the doorway opposite the office, watching to see if the cashier would come out alone. All the clerks passed out, and finally the cashier came out with the chief clerk. There was no use trying to say a word to him when he was with the chief clerk. The man felt that his position was bad enough. He'd been obliged to offer an abject apology to Mr. Allen for his impertinence, but he knew what a hornet's nest the office would be for him. He could remember the way in which Mr. Allen had hounded Little Peak out of the office in order to make room for his own nephew. He felt savage and thirsty and revengeful, annoyed with himself and with everyone else. Mr. Allen would never give him an hour's rest. His life would be a hell to him. He had made a proper fool of himself this time. Could he not keep his tongue in his cheek? But they had never pulled together from the first, he and Mr. Allen. Ever since the day Mr. Allen had overheard him mimicking his North of Ireland accent to amuse Higgins and Miss Parker. That had been the beginning of it. He might have tried Higgins for the money, but sure, Higgins never had anything for himself. A man with two establishments to keep up, of course he couldn't. He felt his great body again aching for the comfort of the public house. The fog had begun to chill him, and he wondered could he touch Pat and O'Neill's. He could not touch him for more than a bob, and a bob was no use. Yet he must get money somewhere or other. He'd spent his last penny for the GP, and soon it would be too late for getting money anywhere. Suddenly, as he was fingering his watch chain, he thought of Terry Kelly's pawn office in Fleet Street. That was the dart. Why didn't he think of it sooner? He went through the narrow alley of Temple Bar quickly, muttering to himself that they could all go to hell because he was going to have a good night of it. "'The clerk and Terry Kelly said, "'A crown,' but the consignor held out for six shillings, "'and in the end the six shillings was allowed him literally. "'He came out of the pawn office joyfully, "'making a little cylinder of the coins between his thumb and fingers. "'In Westmoreland Street, the footpaths were crowded with young men and women "'returning from business, and ragged urchins ran here and there "'yelling out the names of the evening editions. "'The man passed through the crowd,' looking on the spectacle generally with proud satisfaction and staring masterfully at the office girls. His head was full of the noises of tram gongs and swishing trolleys, and his nose already sniffed the curling fumes punch. As he walked on, he preconsidered the terms in which he would narrate the incident to the boys. So I just looked at him, coolly, you know, and looked at her. Then I looked back at him again, taking my time, you know. I don't think that that's a fair question to put to me, says I. Nosey Flynn was sitting up in his usual corner of Davy Burns, and when he heard the story, he stood Farrington a half-one, saying it was as smart a thing as ever he heard. Farrington stood a drink in his turn. After a while, O'Halloran and Patty Leonard came in, and the story was repeated to them. O'Halloran stood tailors of malt, hot, "'all round, and told the story of the retort he had made "'to the chief clerk when he was in Callens of Frown Street. "'But, as the retort was after the manner of the little shepherds "'and the eclogues, he had to admit that it was not as clever "'as Farrington's retort. "'At this, Farrington told the boys to polish off that and have another. "'Just as they were naming their poisons, who should come in but Higgins? "'Of course he had to join in with the others.' The men asked him to give his version of it, and he did so with great vivacity, for the sight of five small hot whiskies was very exhilarating. Everyone roared laughing when he showed the way in which Mr. Allen shook his fist in Farrington's face. Then he imitated Farrington, saying, And here was my nabs, as cool as you please while Farrington looked on at the company out of his heavy, dirty eyes, smiling and at times drawing forth stray drops of liquor from his moustache with the aid of his lower lip. When that round was over, there was a pause. O'Halloran had money, but neither of the other two seemed to have any. So the whole party left the shop somewhat regretfully. At the corner of Duke Street, Higgins and nosy Flynn beveled off to the left, while the other three turned back towards the city. Rain was drizzling down on the cold streets, and when they reached the ballast office, Farrington suggested the Scotch House. The bar was full of men and loud with the noise of tongues and glasses. The three men pushed past the whining match cellars at the door and formed a little party at the corner of the counter. They began to exchange stories. Leonard introduced them to a young fellow named Weathers, who was performing at the Civilly as an acrobat and knockabout artiste. Farrington stood a drink all round. Weathers said he would take a small Irish and a Polinaris. Farrington, who had definite notions of what was what, asked the boys would they have an apollinaris too, but the boys told Tim to make theirs hot. The talk became theatrical. O'Halloran stood a round, and then Farrington stood another round, Weathers protesting that the hospitality was too Irish. He promised to get them in behind the scenes and introduce them to some nice girls. O'Halloran said that he and Leonard would go, but that Farrington wouldn't go because he was a married man. And Farrington's heavy, dirty eyes leered at the company in token that he understood he was being chaffed. Weathers made them all have just one little tincture at his expense and promised to meet them later on at Mulligan's in Poolbeg Street. When the Scotch House closed, they went round to Mulligan's. They went into the parlour at the back, and O'Halloran ordered small hot specials all round. They were all beginning to feel mellow. Farrington was just standing another round when Weathers came back. Much to Farrington's relief, he drank a glass of bitter this time. Funds were getting low, but they had enough to keep them going. Presently, two young women with big hats and a young man in a check suit came in and sat at a table close by. Weathers saluted them and told the company they were out of the Tivoli. Farrington's eyes wandered at every moment in the direction of one of the young women. There was something striking in her appearance. An immense scarf of peacock-blue muslin was wound round her hat and knotted in a great bow under her chin, and she wore bright yellow gloves reaching to the elbow. Farrington gazed admiringly at the plump arm which she moved very often and with much grace, and when after a little time she answered his gaze, He admired still more her large, dark brown eyes. The oblique staring expression in them fascinated him. She glanced at him once or twice, and when the party was leaving the room, she brushed against his chair and said, Oh, pardon, in a London accent. He watched her leave the room in the hope that she would look back at him, but he was disappointed. He cursed his want of money and cursed all the rounds he had stood, particularly all the whiskies and apollinaries which he had stood to weather's. If there was one thing that he hated, it was a sponge. He was so angry that he lost count of the conversation of his friends. When Paddy Leonard called him, he found they were talking about feats of strength. Weathers was showing his biceps muscle to the company, and boasting so much that the other two had called on Farrington to uphold the national honour. Farrington pulled up his sleeve accordingly and showed his biceps muscle to the company. The two arms were examined and compared, and finally it was agreed to have a trial of strength. The table was cleared, and the two men rested their elbows on it, clasping hands. When Paddy Leonard said, Go, each was to bring down the other's hand onto the table. Farrington looked very serious and determined. The trial began. After about thirty seconds, Weathers brought his opponent's hand slowly down onto the table. Farrington's dark, wine-coloured face flushed darker still with anger and humiliation at having been defeated by such a stripling. "'You're not to put the weight of your body behind it. Play fair.' "'Who's not playing fair?' said the other. "'Come on again. The two best out of three. The trial began again. The veins stood out on Farrington's forehead, and the pallor of weather's complexion changed to peony. Their hands and arms trembled under the stress. After a long struggle. "'Weathers again brought his opponent's hand slowly onto the table. "'There was a murmur of applause from the spectators. "'The curate, who was standing beside the table, "'nodded his red head towards the victor and said, with stupid familiarity, "'Ah, that's the knack.' "'What the hell do you know about it?' said Farrington fiercely, "'turning on the man. "'Who do you put in your gab for?' "'Shush, shush, shush,' said O'Halloran, "'observing the violent expression of Farrington's face. "'Pony up, boys!' We'll just have one little schman more, and then we'll be off. A very sullen-faced man stood at the corner of O'Connell Bridge, waiting for the little Sandy Mount tram to take him home. He was full of smoldering anger and revengefulness. He felt humiliated and discontented. He didn't even feel drunk, and he had only tuppence in his pocket. He cursed everything. He had done for himself in the office, pawned his watch, spent all his money, and he'd not even got drunk. He began to feel thirsty again, and he longed to be back again in the hot, reeking public house. He had lost his reputation as a strong man, having been defeated twice by a mere boy. His heart swelled with fury, and when he thought of the woman in the big hat, who had brushed against him and said pardon, his fury nearly choked him. His tram let him down at Shelburne Road, and he steered his great body along in the shadow of the wall of the barracks. He loathed returning to his home. When he went in by the side door, he found the kitchen empty and the kitchen fire nearly out. He bawled upstairs, Ada! Ada! His wife was a little sharp-faced woman who bullied her husband when he was sober and was bullied by him when he was drunk. They had five children. A little boy came running down the stairs. Who's that? said the man, peering through the darkness. Me, Pa. Who are you, Charlie? No, Pa, Tom. "'Where's your mother?' "'She's out at the chapel.' "'That's right. "'Did she think of leaving any dinner for me?' "'Yes, by light the lamp. "'What do you mean by having a place in darkness? "'Are the other children in bed?' The man sat heavily down on one of the chairs while the little boy lit the lamp. He began to mimic his son's flat accent, saying half to himself, "'At the chapel. At the chapel, if you please.' When the lamp was lit, he banged his fist on the table and shouted, "'What's for my dinner?' I'm gonna I'm gonna cook it, Pa, said the little boy. The man jumped up furiously and pointed to the fire. On that fire. You let the fire out. By God, I'll teach you to do that again. He took a step to the door and seized the walking stick which was standing behind it. I'll teach you to let the fire out, he said. "'rolling up his sleeve in order to give his arm free play. "'The little boy cried, pa!" and ran whimpering around the table. "'But the man followed him and caught him by the coat. "'The little boy looked about him wildly, "'but seeing no way of escape, fell upon his knees. "'Now you'll let the fire out next time,' said the man, "'striking at him vigorously with the stick. "'Take that, you little whelp!' "'The boy uttered a squeal of pain as the stick cut his thigh.' He clasped his hands together in the air, and his voice shook with fright. Oh, Pa, he cried, don't beat me, Pa, and and, uh, I'll say a Hail Mary for you. I'll say a Hail Mary for you, Pa, if you don't beat me. I'll say a Hail Mary.
0: So ends our show for From Dublin. We hope you enjoyed it, and for those of you who might want to read a few more old, dog-eared classics, remember James Joyce's Dubliners is still widely available in quality bookstores. It can be freely downloaded online to your tablet or cell phone and, best of all, it's just sitting there waiting for you at our very own Madawaska Valley Public Library here in Barry's Bay, which will be open again to the public this coming week. And if James Joyce doesn't quite turn your crank, remember the advice of Sir Winston Churchill. Every time you are enticed to buy an expensive new bestseller, don't forget to check out those excellent old classics freely available. Tonight's show was performed by Jeff Bowman, Kathy Czepesky, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormkey, all members of the Opyanga Readers Theater. I'm Kristen Marshand, and along with our producer Barry Conway and all of us here at the Opjanga Line, we wish you a good day and God bless.